Welcome, and thanks for joining us in another installment of the Center for the Study of the Novels podcast, CAFE. In this episode, our guest hosts, Ben Libman and Mitch Terrio, are joined by the acclaimed writer Percival Everett. Percival Everett is a distinguished professor of English at the University of Southern California and visited the center on May 13, 2022, to deliver a reading at our conference addressing the turn against fictionality. This conversation was recorded directly before that reading. We're thrilled to now be sharing it with you. Thank you for listening in on another of our warm and informal exchanges, as we scholars have a friendly chat among ourselves. Uh, hello, everyone. Welcome to the CSN podcast. Uh, we have a very special episode today. My name is Ben Libman. I'm a PhD candidate in English here at Stanford. And I'm Mitch Terrio. I am uh, also a PhD candidate here at Stanford in modern thought and literature, and I'm delighted to be here. And uh, we're joined today by uh, a novelist, a poet, a children's book writer, a critic, and a painter, and, and much else besides. He's written something like 30 books, as far as I'm aware, and uh, most of those have been novels. And his name is Percival Everett. Percival, thank you so much for joining uh, us. Thank you for having me. So we're convening today on the occasion of a conference that the CSN is putting on and at which you'll, you'll be reading later today. And the, the theme of that conference is the turn against fictionality. Often this turn against fictionality, as I see it, sort of comes in the form of a desire to, to collapse author into narrator, or to collapse a narrated event into supposed real event, or to collapse, say, beliefs or ideas or opinions stated within the novel uh, into the beliefs, ideas, and opinions of the novelist who wrote them, uh, whether in the mouth of a character or in the kind of disembodied voice of, of a narrator. I guess my first question to you would be, what comes to your mind when you think of the turn against fictionality and how might it come to bear on your work and your career? Well, the first thing that occurs to me is, is a mantra that you hear in film. It's one that, that betrays an inability of, of, of a public to to read fiction and come away with meaning, and that is based on a true story. It's used to sell movies, uh, denying a couple of things. One is that any story is true, <laughs> and, 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 and the other is that, um, that somehow authenticity resides in factuality. And so that conflation of truth and authenticity is at once uh, dangerous, but also misguided and, and, and I think, incapacitates an audience. So kind of along similar lines, I mean, abstraction is kind of a central term in the talk that you'll be giving. And I'd be really curious to just hear how you understand this term. I mean, it seems like it's, it's this very uh, flexible, labile term that has so many resonances and connotations in different uh, registers. I just kind of was curious to hear how you are understanding uh, this term and, and also its role in, in your work. Well, yes, I mean, basically, um, one can approach abstract, the notion of abstraction, one, by saying that there is something that's represented in the world 
and that you step by step abstract that idea image until it's not recognizable as that thing that it was. The other is the abstract expressionist um, model that you've suggested, and that is that it's merely an expression of a feeling. Obviously, it can't be pure idea because idea, like language, is based on representation of something in the world. Um, the problem I have with either notion is that it assumes something called realism. And this is something that I've only come to recently in my own thinking, though it's, it, it seems pretty pedestrian once I thought of it, and that is there is no such thing as, 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 as realistic representation. Even when we look at things in the real world, we see in two dimensions. We can't help but do that because all we see is surfaces, and it's our minds that change things to three dimensions, which is why we can trick the eye or the mind with three dimensions on film. Um, that said, this privileging of the idea of mimesis is what drives my interest in abstraction. We're already starting with abstract thinking, abstract representation. Uh, so it, we're doing something else, and it's not addressing reality. It's addressing this notion we have of what reality looks like. Um, in my work, because the constituent parts of my medium are representational words, I really believe that I should be able to make an abstract novel. Unfortunately, I can't say what that looks like. <laughs> I can't say what it would sound like. I have no idea if I can even recognize it if I make it, but being mentally ill, I continue to try. Is there, I mean, it's so interesting the way that you put that. And it, it occurs to me, I mean, like this error of thinking that there is such a thing as realism that, that you know, mimetic representation is possible in some way. You know, that's like this, this analytical mistake. But I mean, is there a way in which a writer or an artist or someone whose business it is to create representations, if they kind of are laboring under this illusion, uh, do they miss out somehow on not, not seeing that, that this is impossible? Is there a way that this delusion can kind of tamper with one's artistic project? Certainly can. Uh, th the idea that one might take, uh, say, a conversation from real life, a recording, and simply transcribe it and have it serve as dialogue in a story or a novel uh, would yield a really bad novel. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've read that novel. The Warhol novel, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and, the, and, of course, the, the job of, of, of the fiction writer, of, of the novelist, is to create an illusion of real speech. It is not real speech. And, and conversely, if we were to memorize the best dialogue you've read, and then we were to go sit on a bus and act it out to each other, people around us would think we were nuts. <laughs> because it's not real. It does, it, in fact, it, it only sounds real. And it only sounds real within context. But so is the, is the abstraction you're after, in some sense, more real than these realist attempts? So you're asking me if I know what I'm doing, <laughs> and, I, and I do not. <laughs> I, all I know is that I think I should be able yeah. to do it. Much. So it's, I mean, it's like I've read you in, in other interviews talk about how um, you look for the form that makes the most sense given what it is you want to write, and not all forms are going to be able to sort of go the distance. Uh, and that's certainly like reading many of your books. Each of them has a kind of different generic approach to suit a different story. It, do you think that this problem of abstraction is 
a problem of the same kind that is like you have to simply find the right form for it or is it even a problem that throws form into question? I, I wish I could answer that. I, I certainly is the case um, for me that I thought on several occasions that I had achieved a step toward what it is I want to make only to step back and realize I've failed. Um, now that's not uninteresting to me and I and, and I in whatever perverse way, enjoy that failure, but it doesn't get me any closer to my goal. Um, in fact, in some ways, it, 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 it causes me to move in my thinking away from it, and away from understanding it. Um, when I think of my works, perhaps the one that's the most naturalistic, and I always I use that in quotation marks, um, or realistic, is the one that seems to me to have gotten closest to... Um, to that abstract nature, though I can't say why I believe that. I have a novel, um, The Water Cure, which I, I, I believe, it, at least someone mentioned it in this way, and I was trying to attack the fourth wall. Trying to attack that fourth wall, uh, only to realize that, that all that does is move the wall back. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so I, I, didn't, I didn't meet with much success there. So there is no outside in that sense. You no, know, uh, you know, it's this. Well, there's no ceiling. We find. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess it's just on these same lines, given that you do paint, and I've seen a few that seemed relatively, what might be called abstract, although there's certainly mm -hmm. some figural elements within them. Could you not simply go there and say, well, because I work in this medium of language, I could just abscond into this other artistic medium of mine uh, where abstraction might be more possible, or is that cheating? Uh, and would it be cheating to write a novel that included visual elements like that within it? Um, yes, it would be cheating. <laughs> um, also, it wouldn't address what I, what I want to do, and that, and that is to take um, my art that incorporate that, that relies on, on representation and take it to that abstract place. Uh, I'm not sure whether abstract or non-representational are better <laughs> words. I don't like non-representational because I don't like describing anything and negatively, right? Yeah, um, which I'm always um, sort of amazed by the term nonfiction. <laughs> and really, what is that? Um, and and so it's they're they're not the same thing. They inform each other when I go to work. And for the first time, I just had a show of paintings of works that were based on my last novel, The Trees. Mm -hmm. um, they are abstract until you know what they are. And I'm fascinated by that because then they no longer are abstract. So what do I? So what does it mean to say that they are abstract in the first place? Mm. Right, abstraction as like something that a perception that unfolds over time. Since we're talking about you know the relationship between visual art and your writing, I mean the the place that my mind goes to is so much blue. And I guess I found myself wondering if some of these questions about you know non-representationality or figurality, if those questions were kind of in the swirl of your thinking as you were, as you were writing that book in particular? I have to admit to something that we in my house call work amnesia. <laughs> once, once I'm done with a novel, I don't remember it. And so um, I vaguely recall working on this book. Often people will ask me about particular scenes or characters, and I look at them dumbly, um, <laughs> um, not dishonestly, but dumbly, and, and don't remember that this, that, that event occurred. Uh, I remember um, 
the painting and the desire of the artist in the book to destroy it um, before anyone could see it. And that's a notion that I constantly have because I um, tenaciously guard my process. And weirdly, I see that process as a part of the creation of, of the work. So I guess I was thinking about um, my own relationship to, to visual art when I was making it and to that notion of abstraction, but also, again, trying to work through my understanding of it by addressing my own desire to protect myself. I don't know if that makes sense to you. Well, it certainly makes sense because, I mean, there's a way in which the abstract expressionist model of abstraction is kind of one of these, you know, not as satisfying models of abstraction in, in your way of thinking about it. And so on my reading, that book kind of invites the reader down that interpretation of the protagonist's art to a certain degree. Like, oh, these are all of these, um, you know, uh, formative and traumatic experiences in these different timelines. And oh, of course, these are all going to uh, be expressed finally in this one uh, canvas that sums everything up. But, but the process of translation that, you know, those emotions would have to undergo uh, in that model is not available to us in the narrative. And so there's a almost like a like a ruse character, like a, a delightful misdirection where the, uh, the reader thinks that they know what kind of abstraction is going on and that it ends up not being that kind of abstraction that is actually taking, taking place. Sure, I'll take credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate that. Uh, I would really love to ask you about your position uh, as a writer who's also institutionalized uh, within a university. I'm glad you added university. <laughs> <laughs> For now, it's just the university. Yeah. No, um, you know, I, it might be helpful for me to kind of bring up this, like, uh, this anecdote. Uh, when I was an undergrad, I took a seminar that was co-taught by a fairly famous novelist who was, you know, also fairly well decorated, and um, he began the first session by uh, telling us an anecdote, whether it's true or not, I'm, I'm unsure, uh, about Vladimir Nabokov and his uh, candidacy for being brought into the uh, Department of English at Harvard. And apparently, so the story goes, when the committee was assessing his dossier, Roman Jakobsen at some point stood up and said, would we hire the elephant to run the zoo? And uh, apparently that was the winning argument, and he didn't get hired at Harvard, mm -hmm. although of course he worked at Cornell very famously. And the novelist who taught my class and was telling this story, sort of used it as an occasion to register his discomfort, I guess, with his position in that moment, you know, being in a kind of literary environment where we were teaching literature, and yet also being kind of hired in the first place because of his role as a major novelist. I wonder if you feel fundamental tension in your existence as both um, kind of academic, broadly speaking, and also uh, novelist and how that tension might kind of play out in your work or your process. I know. <laughs> you don't at all. I'm, I, I'm just a cowboy. You're just a cowboy. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, it's you sit on the top of the horse and 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 you ride. It's none of this is hard. Um, universities are great. I get paid to hang out with smart young people, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that's what it comes to. We get to talk about things that I don't understand. Mm -hmm. Um, um, I'm only interested in the world because I'm interested in things that I don't understand. Yeah. I, mean, I suppose if I sat out thinking long enough about it, I could 
just like any person, I could work myself up into, into a lather and get confused and, <laughs> and, and be institutionalized, as you said. Um, but no, it's 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 not difficult. Well, that's good. I'm I'm glad to hear that. Uh, I I wouldn't want you to have any undue difficulties uh, because of that position. <laughs> well, now that you've mentioned it. <laughs> But it's it's interesting to me, at, at least you know, to read something like Glyph or to read you know those earlier moments in Erasure when when Monk is going to the Nouveau Roman Society conference and being accosted by the post-structuralists. You know, I I guess I wonder where where that that world and that kind of vocabulary uh, registers with you. You know, where does it sit in your kind of uh, mental cosmology? Well, I have a good bullshit detector. And, and and I'd be you know I, I I would never lie and there's plenty of that to be found in academia there's yeah. plenty of lip service paid to jargon there's plenty of jargon that is just jargon uh, and there's plenty of jargon to be decoded to find something interesting there's a lot of carving out space for for careers I don't begrudge anyone that though it might bore me to tears um, <laughs> uh, but. I suppose if I worked in an advertising agency, mm. somebody would be working on a campaign for deodorant that I didn't like. You know, one that involves aluminum that kills people. So. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> I mean, there's no kind of real organic linkage from what we were just talking about to this question. But as we were talking about earlier, I mean, your work makes use of elements from so many different genres. And I feel like this is one of the kind of er narratives about recent literature that, you know, genres are these kind of mobile things that, that people um, kind of, uh, something about it's in the air, but it's also something that you've been doing for longer than people have been talking about it. So, you know, just thinking about the elements of detective procedural and Western and thriller and speculative elements, just like what role did, to, to kind of formulate it, I guess, similarly to how Ben formulated his last question, like what role do these genres uh, have in your, you know, in your artistic cosmology, and what what do they help you do? Well, first of all, anytime somebody does does something more than twice, it's a genre. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the idea that, that that literary fiction is described as one that does not fit into a genre is is kind of strange. Um, um, though I can't give you the, the necessary and sufficient conditions to make that I claim it's not formulaic in that way. Uh, but as soon as I say it's not formulaic in that way, I've given you a criterion. I, I have never made a study of, in fact, I can't read detective fiction. I've never been able to read it. Um, I'm not drawn to it. Um, but all of us have seen all of the tropes all around us, and uh, so we know them. And that's available to me as a writer to exploit in the same way that humor would be. You know, it's, it's, it's part of the trap of fiction. There are tricks, uh, and, that's how, and that's how magicians work. Nobody believes that that ace really turned into a king. <laughs> it's that you can't see how it becomes a king. It's very resonant with the talk about hocus pocus that's going on right now. <laughs> do, you, do you read other, other uh, so-called genre fictions? Like, you're, you're a cowboy, do you read westerns? Or watch I, westerns. I, I, I teach a course on the American Western, um, and I read, I do not read them, but I did read 150 of them because I wrote a parody of, <laughs> of the Western, and so I, I read a lot and watched a lot, uh, mainly because I wanted to create a language 
of the Western that didn't exist. In order to do that, I had to learn it and then, and then own it and then change it. Have you returned to Westerns since, or did you exhaust Westerns in your uh, media consumption diet after doing that? Oh, never say never. See, now you've put this in my head. I, uh... <laughs> I'm curious about, um, more broadly, I would love to hear, just out of curiosity, who the writers are that you read in order to then write. You know, Who kind of gets no. your juices flowing? Well, one of my heroes is J.L. Austin. And not just his work on, on, on sense data, sense datum theory, and not and not how to do things with words, which is about um, performative language and, and elocutionary acts and all that stuff. It's more his essays, like a, a plea, which I will reference tonight as uh, a plea for excuses, uh, where he gives a great argument about the difference between a mistake and a, and, a, and um, an accident, <laughs> and that's in a footnote. <laughs> so I won't be anything. What is the difference? Oh, it's a long story. That's <laughs> yeah, a great story, and I and I and I love Bertrand Russell, and I love Bertrand Russell in a fairly narrow way. I've always had this this dream and this desire to teach um, Principia Mathematica as as a literary text, even though there's not a single sentence. In it. <laughs> I, I think it's a beautiful work of of, of um, literary logic, if you will. Do you love the Russell who uh, disliked the philosophical investigations? I agree with the Russell who didn't like that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the philosophical investigations is, 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 a, is fantastic, and you have to put another book on top of it or it will just float to the ceiling, <laughs> and, and it will give you a headache every time you open it. Um, uh, it's, it's a remarkable uh, uh, document about not doing what you preach. Mm-hmm. But... There are some great ideas, and, and, and ones that I return to frequently, not the least of which is, is the, the beetle in the box. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I would note from that answer that the writers who get you writing, at least the ones that you mentioned, are not novelists. Um, well, it's not, nah, well, I mentioned those because one of my interviewers steered me that way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> um, no, I, 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 one of the funniest novels I've ever read, is, and, and I read it every year, is The Way of All Flesh by Samuel mm-hmm. Butler. Um, no one talks about it. Uh, everyone talks about his novel. No, everyone. Six people talk about his novel, uh, Erwan. Um, but I love The Way of All Flesh. I also um, love the work of Chester Himes, who is, who is uh, not read enough, and when he is read, it's his genre work, the, the detective stuff that's talked about. But his... I only know of three of them, three literary novels and one posthumously published novel called Plan B mm. that I think are remarkable. When you think through these philosophical ideas that you're, re- you're reading or that you've read, think through Wittgenstein, think through Russell, are you finding a way to incorporate something like philosophical propositions into your novel or is that, or is that a kind of, are those two things anathema? Uh, I, I don't know exactly how it's happening. I, I, I do know that uh, there are certain um, basically logical questions uh, that drive my interest in identity, um, not the least of which being uh, the remarkable understanding that A equals A is not the same as A is A. And, and, and that gives me a headache, <laughs> and that gets me working. 
Can you explain that a bit to No, I can't. No. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'll I'll accept it, though. It's a mystery to be pondered. (laughs) That's right. We'd love to hear a little bit about what you're about to read. I have not decided. (laughs) I, I... I have a problem with, with the idea of readings in, in, in general, and that is, um, I wrote this down. So it's available to people to read, and, and I find it strange that anyone wants to hear a writer read it out loud. So uh, I actually, given the, uh, the context of the conference, I, I think I will tell an instructive story, and we'll see. I, mean, I can always fall back on a book sitting beside me. That's the comfort of having written a book, I can just say, oh. I'll just read this. But um, I, I have something in mind, which is always a frightening thing to hear me say. Uh, see what happens. <laughs> well, uh, first of all, thank you so much for being thank here you. with us and talking to us. Very much appreciated. Thank you very much. Thank you again for joining us in this episode of the Center for the Study of the Novels podcast, CAFE. We would also like to thank Percival Everett for his generosity in agreeing to this conversation. Thanks to our team at the Center for the Study of the Novel, to Colleen Laurent and Maritza Colon for their operational support, to our graduate coordinators, Ali Gamble, Alex Sherman, and Ido Karen, to Casey Patterson for recording, editing, and sound engineering, and to our host and director, Margaret Cohen. The Center for the Study of the Novel is a subsidiary of the English Department at Stanford University.